Welcome to Episode 1, Why High Quality Lesson Study in the CanMe Podcast Series, Making Equity in Mathematics Lessons Concrete. The California Action Network for Mathematics Excellence and Equity, CanMe, is a collaboration of the California Mathematics Project with state and national groups and organizations that focus on excellence and equity in mathematics education. I'm your host for this session, Joni Commons, from the UC San Diego Mathematics Project, and I serve as a facilitator on our lesson study teams. Our guests today participated in one or more lesson study cycles over the last year. Amy Wirt and Christina Quiroga teach sixth grade in National School District near the U.S.-Mexico border. Anna Hunt also teaches sixth grade in Chula Vista Elementary School District, also near the U.S.-Mexico border. Christina, please describe your teaching situation. Thank you, Joni. So for our team, it consisted of three teachers. This is my first year of teaching sixth grade. And my partner, Amy, she's been teaching sixth grade most of her career. And the third teacher, Claudine, this is, I believe, she's taught sixth grade four years. So each of us decided to team teach this year. I was the science teacher. Amy was the math teacher and Claudine was our English language arts teacher. And this was, again, our first experience with lesson study. Together, we have each been teaching more than 15 years. So this is a new experience for us. Anna, you have a different teaching situation. Please describe it for us. Well, we are a traditional K-6 elementary school. We are also in International Baccalaureate School, so I work with a teaching partner, Diane Trailer, and we collaborate across the board on every subject. We work hand-in-hand. What I do, she does, vice versa. That's pretty traditional. When our math project invited teachers to join a lesson study team, the first questions they asked included... How would lesson study look in my classroom? And why should I spend so much time planning one lesson? As you will hear, the process of lesson study begins to change how you see your students and the instructional choices you make from the beginning of the process. As the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, no man ever steps in the same river twice for it is not the same river and he is not the same man. Lesson study is a form of collaborative professional development situated in the teacher's classroom, focused on his or her own students around an area of mathematics of interest and involves research about more effective learning for each student. Tell us about your lesson study process. Thank you, Joni. As Christina mentioned before, we were trying out team teaching in our sixth grade group, and it gave us a unique perspective because 
each of us saw the student from a different perspective. We had the language arts perspective, the math and the science teacher. So as a team, we met weekly after school for a minimum of two hours and we conducted our research and our lessons. We would try them out in our classroom, different techniques and ideas in each of the different content areas and see how it worked with our students. So it gave us a really unique perspective being able to look at the kids in different content areas. As far as the actual public lesson, I was the one that taught the lesson to the groups of students. We taught to two different math blocks and it was taught over a course of a couple of days. And while I was teaching, Christina and Claudine, as long, along with the other uh, observers, were able to observe the lesson and observe the focal students. Anna, you are in a self-contained class and you collaboratively plan with a teaching partner. Tell us about your lesson study experience. Well, it all began when my uh, the principal and myself attended the CanMe workshop in um, Los Angeles. And what was really important is that she was 100% on board with us doing the lesson study. I could I can't tell you enough how important that was for us. It allowed us to do the work that we needed to do during release time. So we had two days of release time for the research and work, and then one day of release time for the research lesson. I taught a lesson. Um, Diane and our co-conspirators, they watched, were able to do the observing. We met again with the group. Then we talked about the lesson and how we would change it. And then Diane was teaching the lesson in the afternoon to her class where I was part of the observing. It worked really well. And then at the end of the day, the whole group came back and we were able to discuss and take apart our lesson and also what we observed from our focal students. Wonderful. The lesson study process begins by learning more about the students. Amy, how did selecting the focal students and the process of observing, surveying, interviewing those students impact your instructional decisions both right away and during the research lesson? So since we had three groups of students, we had over 90 students that we wanted to interview. So what we did is we uh, used a a website called Flipgrid where the students were able to do self-interviews. So we gave them some of the questions that Canme had provided And the students were able to think about and answer their questions and record videos of that. And then we were able to play that back and go and ask some more detailed questions on anything that we wanted to know more information about. And as we watched them, we were able to kind of gather some focal students and look for themes. Something that came out from those interviews right away is a lot of students said, Um, To the answer of what makes a person good at math, their answers were they are fast at math, they get their answers correct, and they take good notes. We knew right away that we wanted to work on that with our students because we all know that a good mathematician does not mean that you are fast at math and you get all the correct answers. We know that mathematicians take their time. There's a lot of perseverance. It could take them years to solve some of their theories. And so that was a good jumping off point for us as we got to know our students better is trying to set up with them growth mindset and perseverance and arguing and justifying in math. And that was something that we could do right away. Yes, I agree uh, with Amy was saying about 
are what our students perceive as a good mathematician. The faster the student is at math, the better they are. That's how the, our students see it. And the ones who take notes, that makes them a better math student. And then the third point was participation. The students at our school thought the ones that participate are the better math students. Anna, you were able to do two cycles of lesson study last year. What changed is you got to know your students more deeply over time. Well, we did a survey of 60 students. The survey was a student survey for small group work. And one of the first things we noticed, one of the questions was, um, what was the purpose of your teacher asking questions during small group time? And a majority of our students said to remind us of the right steps for solving a problem. So we knew what they expected from us and we knew we needed to change that. So what changed was how we looked at our students when they worked together. Collaborative talk is a huge thing for us and making them responsible for their own thinking. So with that in mind, we were able to focus more on the students our focal students in group work and how they interpreted their role in the group. And so as we did the first cycle, we learned who was taking leadership roles, um, how they were sharing, how they were recording their work. And then on the second lesson study, we noticed that our focal students were more vocal. They were taking a more leadership role as they became more confident and comfortable with their mathematics. So it was really exciting for us to see the change in quite a few of our focal students. And I think that's something that we saw um, after the lesson study we did was their change in mindset from the whole growth mindset thinking that they were really changing their idea of not a math person to I can be a math person, right? So we, we did see a, a growth there. Wonderful. Christina, you taught science to the students. What changed for you as you got to know the focal students more deeply through the math lens and then got to observe them as Amy taught the math research lesson? Having the focal students just allowed me to focus more on them in science. Um, I was able to give them opportunities to build ownership, giving them opportunities to share their thinking, um, giving them think time. That was really important. After we were preparing the lesson study, we noticed that kids needed more time to think. Kind of what Anna said, in giving kids more leadership roles, we wanted to make sure that each kid is an active participant. And so just being more intentional with, okay, I'm going to assign this student A, my focal student A, and another student B, we're strategic in how I placed them, partnered them. And I might say, you know, I'm going to give the focal student the position of being partner A and allow that focal student to speak first in science and then have the partner speak after. So again, just being strategic and intentional as to how to get the students to be more active participants. So it just really made me focus on our equity theme of ownership, again, if we want them to have that ownership, is just giving them a lot of opportunities to practice. The next step is to write a strengths-based description. 
Anna, how did writing a strengths-based description of each focal student change your perception of the student and inform your instructional decisions? Well, as a teacher, we always want to look for strength-based qualities in a student. And sometimes the daily grind of teaching, we kind of lose our focus. But this really helped us uh, center our thinking on what strengths they have. It really changed our perception of some of our focal students. As they come in, you, you read about the student, you look at their scores, you think, oh, they're weak in a certain area, they're stronger in a certain area. But as we got to know them, we really noticed that the, per- the perception that we had of the student as they came in changed once we got to know them on a more uh, personal level, as we interviewed them, as we saw them work as our focal student, we started realizing that their strengths they had were, I think, sometimes hidden behind maybe a personality or their insecurities where they thought they weren't a math person, but you could see that they were just, they were, they were right below the surface, their, their skill level, and they just needed that extra push or that extra push to see themselves in a more positive light, that they can do the maths. So it was knowing that we felt that our instructional decisions were more based on their abilities that we were able to detect through the interviews. When we did the strength-based description, we went back to our survey of our focal students and kind of just looked at how they answered. Most of them were multiple choice or yes, no questions. So we looked at that. And then we looked at the notes that were taken when we did our one-on-one interview and how they perceived themselves, how they saw math at school and how they saw math at home. That was a big eye-opener for us. I We really don't take the time to think of how they see math at home. We know they come with math. We know that. I mean, even preschoolers come with some sort of math knowledge. But being able to sit down and asking them, how do you see math at home? Where do you see math at home? It really opened up a discussion between the student and myself on wow, there is math everywhere, even though I say it every day, you know, but having them reflect on where they see or use math every day was great. One of my students um, commented that she helps her mother uh, with her mom's job, which happened to be supplying a beauty uh, supply store. And she had to count out the boxes of eyelashes and put them in certain groups and sort them. And I and my question to her was, well, did you realize that you were using math? She goes, no. She goes, I had no idea that math was involved there. And so we talked about how math is used for her mom's job. And she was like, well, my mom never went to college. We had to talk about there's still math. Whether you go to college, whether you finish high school, there still is an element of math in everything we do. So one of the things that we noticed during our uh, research and finding our strengths was some hidden strengths that our students had that they may not be aware that they possess. Like I said, my student that was counting 
boxes of eyelashes and categorizing and sorting and using multiples and having her kind of discover on her own that she had some hidden strengths. She had hidden strengths that she uses at home that can be applied at school. And I think so many times our students have this barrier between what they can do at home and what they can do at school. Wow. There is math everywhere, even though I say it every day, you know, but having them reflect on where they see or use math every day was great. So Anna, what you just said reminded me about something. Christina and I have hosted a couple of family math nights for our school, and we have had a session where we've had parents and students talk about what makes a good mathematician. And I believe that was this year after we did these student surveys that we added that into our um, family math night. And we had some students shared out, and it was really interesting that our primary students, kindergarten, first, and second, when they were asked what makes a good student or a good math student, they were sharing out, they work hard, they have perseverance, they don't give up, they take risks. And it was really interesting for us to sit back and reflect on that, that at the primary level, that's what the students are thinking is a good mathematician. But when they get up to us in sixth grade, why are they now thinking that a good mathematician is fast and gets the answer correct and takes good notes? So we were really trying to be cognizant of that this year. And I don't know where that shift in thinking happens, but we really spent a lot of time trying to help them get back to knowing that it's not being the quickest and the fastest and the best and the best note taker. That's not what it takes to be a good mathematician. Two of the common responses were, oh, my parents use math when they pay bills or when they go grocery shopping. But again, we want them to dig deeper to see like where where else do my parents use it and how are they using it? Well, I think that's um, a key component is to, uh, a lot of our students didn't think that they used math at home. And as we went through um, the math throughout the year, we could start pointing out ways that they did. But I learned that your mom is a nurse. How do you think your mom uses math? Well, she doesn't use math. Well, what does she do? Well, she measures out medicine, da, da, da. So then we could talk about make connections and use those in our problems. Um, I found out some parents were painters and carpenters from these interviews. And so we were able to use some of um, those types of problems in our lesson. And it really, I think, opened up the eyes to the students that math is all around them everywhere in the real world. And I think just kind of going back to what Amy was saying, we had family math night. I think it's so important just to inform parents because when we did share the data with the parents, like they were actually surprised, right, Amy? It's just keeping them informed and letting them know how we can break this this cycle of kids once they get to upper grades, just to change their mindset. I think also empowering the parents to know there's no such thing as a math person, first of all, and different ways that they can go about phrasing what they think, or maybe math is more of a challenge for me, or I have to really work hard and persevere when it comes to math, or different things that they can talk about with their students about it instead of saying, oh, it's okay, I'm not a math person either. I think it, it goes back to informing the parents and giving them the support as well. Christina, using the perspective of math, English language arts, and science, how did writing a strengths-based description of the focal students impact your science teaching? 
So again, because our situation was a little different, we team taught. It was very helpful to, as a team, when Claudine, Amy, and myself sat down and we noticed, okay, well, what strengths do these focus students have in each of our classrooms? So I know when when I was looking at my particular focal student, I know that he didn't participate in math. He didn't participate in, in science. But for Claudine, our language arts teacher, he did. And so what we were trying to figure out is, okay, so why is it that he's participating, that he feels comfortable enough to participate in language arts? Or what is it that Claudine is doing differently? So that was a nice opportunity for us to plan the math lesson because we wanted to say, okay, well, what is it that that is working well in language arts that we can apply in math, in our math research lesson? It impacted my science in that in our research lesson, one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to give students credit for their work. So as each student was sharing their strategy for the border problem, Amy was writing their name down. And so what I started doing in science is whenever kids would give a response or if we were doing writing questions right next to the question, I would write their name. And just keeping it visible, I think that really made a difference. I've seen it in math and in science is if you're giving kids ownership of their strategy, but keeping it up, like not just for the lesson, maybe keep it up for a week and kids can be proud. Oh, that was my strategy. And there, there has even been times in science when kids would point to it. Oh, right there when, you know, that's um, Amy's strategy or they would refer back to it. Amy, how did this strengths-based perspective impact your teaching from the beginning of the lesson study process? And I think looking for a strength-based description is key because so many times, myself included, teachers will focus on what students can't do instead of what they can do. I know I'm guilty of doing that even for myself. I can sit there and focus on tell you all the things that I cannot do or I am I don't think I am good at but really focusing on where what you can do and where the students are helps you build from there instead of where the standards say that they should be at this month of this year it's really important to take the time to peel back the layers and find those hidden strengths like Anna was saying and what the students can do so Maybe they are not somebody who's going to stand in front of the classroom and give this amazingly brilliant, eloquent presentation on a strategy, but they're a student that can draw it out in their notebook and or create a slideshow of it to showcase their work. So just finding where they are and what they can do, and maybe they don't have you know multiplication facts memorized, but they have these strategies that they're able to do, like maybe they can break it apart or they can decompose multiplication tables to figure out um, their solution. So just really finding where the student is and what they can do so you can help them build from there. Christina also alluded to or said, having the perspective of three different teachers looking at the students from different subject areas was really helpful for those students that would not participate in math or language arts or science in one particular area, but they were participating in a different 
it really pushed us to figure out why. And if I didn't have the perspective of a teammate who saw the student in all the other areas, I wouldn't have gotten that insight into them. I might've think that the student was just shy and quiet and didn't ever want to participate and not known that in language arts, they're up and sharing and getting involved in all the group work. So knowing what their strengths were in each of the different areas and not just in math really pushed us to look deeper and farther and to help them and come up with different strategies to help them have the same success across all subject areas. And this is where the power of collaboration really comes in because especially at the beginning of the school year, you may not know a student that well, or you might not have connected. So talk to teachers who know, talk to their, you know, fourth grade teacher, their fifth grade teacher, just to get a better understanding what worked for this student or, you know, what can you say positive, positive input, obviously, but I think that's key. That's really exciting. With focal students and all of your students in mind, the next step is to write an equity-based research theme. What will increase each student's access, agency, ownership, or identity? Podcast 4 will describe this step in detail. Now the next step. Keep an eye on the students, but now we begin to focus on the math content. Amy, as you began to research the math content for this learning opportunity, what changed for you and how did the math commentator support your learning? So we were fortunate enough to have our math commentator, Joni, meet with us weekly as we met as a team for the 10 or plus weeks. And she would keep bringing us back to the question, but what do you want the students to do? How will you know if they can do it? And working with the commentator really kept us grounded and focused because we'd want to go off on all these other tangents and all these other side routes. And having the commentator work with us really brought us back and kept us focused and made us really visualize what it was going to look like. What, what would the students be doing? What would we be doing? What would the talk that would be happening? What what would the students produce? It also throughout the whole process, focusing on the math content made us really think about and research, how are we going to have the students show their understanding? We wanted to have them show it visually. We wanted them to talk about it. We started providing different materials that we didn't necessarily do for um, lessons in the past like having base 10 blocks and graph paper and whiteboard markers and different materials that we saw the students gravitate towards in other lessons, we want to make sure that they had access to that as well. So we wanted to make sure that we were thinking deep, the students were thinking deep, and really focusing on the math content for that particular lesson. Christina, how did this focus on the math content impact your science teaching? It impacted my science teaching because working together, we were able to, again, um, just discuss and plan learning opportunities that I was able to apply in science. So we had, I was making a lot of different connections to what kids were learning in math. For example, in science, we were doing graphing. And so I was able to tell students, like making the connection with patterns that you were learning in algebra. And that was um, our lesson that we did a research lesson for our lesson study. So having kids say, okay, just like you were making connections with patterns, now we're going to look at the trends, look at the patterns, the graphing, 
and analyze and being able to then have students draw conclusions just as they did or as they were doing in math. Anna, you and Diane did a great deal of research into the math content for both of your lesson study cycles. Tell us about your learning. Well, um, it started with what, what did we want our kids to know? What did we want them to understand? How are we going to be able to get that point across? So uh, we went back to the framework. And uh, when I attended the workshop and up in L.A., I was speaking to one of the other teachers up there. And it made such complete sense to us to go back to the framework. And it's just right there what the kids should be able to do or what they should know. And so after looking at the framework, we chose, I think it's a Mars task. Uh, it's called Debbie's Brownies. I think that was the name of it. Here we thought it was a very simple problem doing brownies and fractions and, you know, everything a sixth grader could do. But uh, our commentator, Miss Joni, once again, uh, really brought to light what we thought was simple was not so simple when broken down and looking at looking at it through a different perspective of our students. And that was a real eye-opener for us. As we researched what problem we were going to do, what is it you want your students to know or be able to do? How will they be able to do it? We used the Debbie's Brownie and then decided to begin the investigation with a real live demonstration of what goes into making brownies. And so I did that first. And then when it came to, after discussion with a group of uh, educators, we decided to switch it up a little for Diane's version because my, my students, the measuring cup seemed to be a problem with our, our kids' understanding. So we had to break, down, break that down even more. Instead of using a full measuring cup, we broke it down to a fourth of a measuring cup to make sure they understood the fraction itself. So that's what we did for the first one. The second one, we actually made a video of a, it was a speed versus time problem. And we created a video that the students watched. So we took it from having hands-on to having the kids observe a video. And then they used that to solve the problem. This was really interesting they loved the watching the video part. They really got into asking these questions about the video and the components that we did not expect. And what was cool was that they really enjoyed it. They wanted to see it again. Okay, Mrs. Hunt, what does this mean? Okay, Mrs. Hunt. And it was, it was really a very cool experience with them. Thank you. Now that we know the students and we know the content much more deeply. Now comes the collaborative planning for the research lesson, and that's done in exquisite detail. You ladies spent hours planning the learning opportunities. Anna, you just described the launch of both of your lessons. Tell us about how planning so carefully for the launch gave every student access into the problem. Well, we tried to make the launch as clear as possible, knowing that we have different levels of understanding within our whole group. So we tried to make it for our visual learners, having the real, the measuring cup, the pan, the flour, the cocoa, we use those so 
our learners would understand exactly what it meant to make brownies. Some kids maybe have never made brownies before. The planning that went into that was, uh, like, I, like I stated previous, we thought it was a simple problem. But when we broke it down and we went to our real life components, it wasn't, it wasn't as simple as we thought. And, and we, we really saw um, through our students' eyes where the difficulties lie behind the, the situation in the problem. So it took a lot of time to get to that point, meeting with our, our core group, understanding why we needed to do that. And I think that was part of the, a little bit of resistance because in pacing and planning, you're only given so much time. But once we understood the, the idea behind breaking the problem down and planning it, it was well worth it. it. I mean, that that time met with resistance at first, but then we we got into it and we understood, okay, this is how it needs to be seen. So it, it was well worth our time. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it other than it was well worth our time. Well, I was going to say, going back to the thinking about the launch, we we altered our launch many times before how we were going to do it. And when we were doing the walkthrough before the lesson, we altered it again. And then I taught the lesson to one group of students and we went back and altered the launch again another time before it was taught to the second group of students. So it was really interesting to see, like Anna had said, really focusing on something that seems so uh, small out of the chunk of the whole lesson, but really laid the foundation and looking at it from a student's perspective um, and your, in particular your focal student's perspective and knowing, well, anticipating how they were going to react and receive information based on what we've done with them throughout the year was really important and really interesting and, and gave me a totally different perspective when I was planning this launch of not just how I normally would launch it, but really keeping these students in mind as we were planning this launch. Great. Christina, you and Amy spent a great deal of time choosing a task with high cognitive demand that was just on the edge of what your students knew and were ready to work on. Tell us about that. So this part of the lesson study process was my favorite. Just as Anna said, it was well worth it. This was my favorite part. Even though we spent so many hours, again, the team, Amy, Claudine, and myself, and you, Joni, like I felt, I looked forward to it. I mean, at the end of the day, when I was tired from working a full day, I will say that uh, I, sometimes I I was like, oh, I could just stay after school two hours. But then I, I once I got there, I enjoyed it, just like exercising, right? And so what we decided is we also wanted to make sure that all of our students had access to a problem. So we chose Joe Bowler's border problem. We adapted it a bit, but we really liked that problem. Our equity theme is we wanted ownership. We wanted to give kids an opportunity to be able to talk and share. And so we know that we needed, we knew that we needed a low floor, high ceiling problem in which we would get students to share multiple strategies. And that's exactly what we got. We got several strategies um, once the lessons were in play. Now, Christina, we did spend a great deal of time planning out those questions. 
what did you learn about questioning or what surprised you about this level of questioning? So I do want to mention one of the things that we did, and thanks to Joni, you had advised us to research. And so I would say reading books and learning about how to be intentional, like that helped us a lot because just as Anna mentioned, it wasn't just why we would be a little bit more of a specific. Is there another strategy that you could share or explain your thinking? Or what did you mean by that? And so I think that was really important, just being informed as like how to question kids. What we found that was helpful, and Jean, um, Amy mentioned this a little while ago, was the order, the sequence of who who are we going to present first? So we asked this student this question about the border problem. They gave their response. We asked another student. They gave their response. But when we were uh, in science, when I was applying this, I would pay attention to how I would share it. So that that was helpful for me. Anna, you did the process anticipating possible solutions. What struck you in having done that process? Well, we have used this Mars task in previous years. It's just part of our pacing guide. And so we, and, and our students have never done well, and we never understood why. We looked at our previous years. We, we kind of saw what they've done, kind of looked at, okay, how did they get this? Why would they do this? So we kind of anticipated more of the same mistakes. So we, we felt prepared. So when we walked around, we, we kind of had an idea of the questions we would be asked. And we felt we were prepared to answer them. But because, going back to our survey, so many of the students comment that the teachers, the teachers would go to a small group while they waited for us to tell them the right way to do something, we purposely made it our goal that that was not what we were going to do. We purposely formed questions so that we could turn it around and instead of leading them to make it correct or leading them to how to solve it the way we would, we purposely had questions where we we put it back on them. And so they had to come up with their own answers. So we were taking the information we got from the survey and applying it to the group work. So it kind of threw them for a loop. We weren't coming up and saying, oh, well, you know, you need to do it a certain way. We were going up and saying, well, asking them why. Why did you do it this way? Um, Are there other ways that you could think of solving this? And it kind of it kind of surprised our students. They weren't expecting that. So uh, that was a big learning lesson for us. Thank you. Part of the exquisite planning in great detail involves anticipating student solution paths or solutions to your high cognitive demand problems. Amy, how did that impact your readiness to carry out the lesson having done that anticipation step? It was actually pretty neat to see. So we had spent a lot of time anticipating what students would possibly come up as a solution. And then we spent a lot of time coming up with questions. Okay, so if the students came up with this solution, 
what would be your follow-up question? Or if we came up with this one, what would be your follow-up question? We also spent a lot of time talking about the order that we would have students share their solution paths. So by the time we got to the actual um, public lesson, I literally had a sheet of paper with on a clipboard that I had that was, okay, if this student comes up, if a solution comes up, that's this, this is your follow-up question, then you would want to go to this one. And when I walked around and looked at student solutions, there, there they all were. We had anticipated what they were doing based on how we knew the students were thinking and the other lessons that we had done with them. And it was really helpful, put my mind at ease. Um, once I saw that was happening, I felt confident that um, I knew where I I wanted them to go and they were making a journey along that path. And like Anna said, I was open. There was a student that came in and asked a question that was, I was not necessarily prepared for. It wasn't on my sheet of uh, questions that I was going to ask, but it, it didn't really phase me. And the students went with it. Um, we helped her th walk through her thinking. And then we were able to just kind of swing it on back to the path that we wanted all the students to go to. So I, it was well worth the time anticipating students' solution paths and generating questions based on those. If I can jump in real quick, I think the other part of this planning was the practicing. I don't think I've ever practiced a lesson in front of other teachers, which can be very intimidating. And to practice the lesson before taking it into the classroom, at first I was very resistant. I don't know if you remember, Joni. <laughs> but it was amazing because I got over the initial nervousness. It really made a difference when I went into my classroom. Having practiced it, I knew what I was going to say. But I felt prepared to, if it didn't go in the direction I thought it was going to go, I felt, I felt confident that, okay, I practiced this. I'm open to change because, you know, as a teacher, you have to be flexible and knowing that I'm not being judged on the lesson itself. That I think was really important to me as well. During the research lesson, the math and equity commentators and other observers gather data on your equity-based research theme, the lesson hypothesis, and the impact on the focal student's learning. Christina, you were an observer in both research lessons for your team. How did observing a student throughout the lesson impact you? It was interesting because, I mean, when we usually when we teach a lesson, we obviously we look to our students to see how if they're all active participants, but it's not the same when you observe one student. Like you have this one student who you're focused on. And so for me, I see my focus student, I was observing him in math, but also in the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, well, do I see this in science? Is, does he, is he the same? What can I do to help him? Like, I'm really going to pay attention to is if he's speaking, because that was our equity theme is ownership, but I was also paying attention to his body language. And so one of the things that I observed my focus student, what he did, and I know that this made a difference when we taught, when Amy taught day two of the lesson. So the first day in the lesson, she had given kids roles, so partner A and partner B. And so he was partner A. But what we noticed, or what I noticed when I was observing him, is even though he was partner A and he was supposed to speak first, he didn't. And so I brought that to the group's 
the team's attention. And so then the next day, what Amy did is she she was more, I would say, more intentional about, okay, so partner A is going to go and I'm going to time you. I believe the first day was like partner A, share your thinking, and then partner B. But I think the second day, I think it was, okay, partner A, I'm going to give you a certain amount of seconds, then partner B. That sounds right. And I think it was, and if you give your answer and you still have time left, make sure you elaborate on that and continue the discussion, not just sit in silence while you're waiting for the the next group to start. Anna, you both taught the research lesson and were an observer during a lesson. What did you learn from both perspectives? Well, the first thing I learned was that it wasn't about me. And that was really important. Just as we were mentioning a little while ago, once I got out of my own head, because again, it's very intimidating to have other adults in the classroom. Once I got out of my own head about that, I was much more comfortable. I could be there just as a teacher. I didn't have to worry that anybody was going to be judging me. So I I feel like doing the lesson, I was more comfortable. I was more confident in myself. I feel like my students got more from me because I wasn't nervous about what others were thinking. On the other hand, and I can observe my students. That I, I think I should add that. I can observe my students through a teacher lens, not am I being looked at through a principal's lens. <laughs> it can be very intimidating. But then as an observer, I focusing on that one student, watching my partner, it took on a totally different meaning as I watched my focal student do their work within the group or with a partner. And I could see, you can see someone's wheels turning, the look on their face, the look in their eye, because sometimes you can't always see that when you're addressing you know, a group of 30. But that focal student, I could actually see them working and thinking and talking. And I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to try to help. I was just there as an observer. And it made a huge difference on how I looked at my students after that. I I knew I could take that focus and maybe just for a few instances in my whole class group and just look at it through a different person's eyes as an observer, not just as the teacher. And uh, it opened my eyes uh, tremendously from that perspective. Amy, you were the presenting teacher for both research lessons. How did the feedback on your focal students' learning impact you? Yeah, I agree. Just knowing that they're not looking at you as a person or how you're delivering the lesson, that the observers are there to observe the focal students and how the lesson is affecting them and supporting them. I think that was really helpful and really brought down the high level of anxiety of having a team of researchers in your room with your students. And then also just working with our team for so long on this lesson really built the trust and the respect. We've worked together for years, um, not necessarily on the same grade level, but we've worked together for for many, many years and we know each other really well. And I would consider them friends, but this, this just took it to a whole nother level of trust and respect and vulnerable, like being willing to be vulnerable and ask questions and ask for support and give and receive feedback. Like it's not 
everything's all sunshine and rainbow and everything's perfect. It was, Hey, what if we tried this or what if we tried this way? And really, I think that really benefited the three of us teachers, but also our students because we were so much on the same page and willing to try new things that we hadn't done before. I think the collaboration part and the working together was key. Christina, what changed in your teaching of science because you participated in this math lesson study? I would say the biggest thing that has changed for me is the collaboration piece. I feel like as a teacher, there's like so many ideas and so many things that and resources that teachers can share. But I feel like teachers in our profession, we isolate ourselves. We stay in our classrooms. We design our lessons, but I don't feel like we collaborate enough. And so for me, even though I teach science and Amy, math and Claudine, language arts, like I felt comfortable, again, going back to just feeling comfortable and really trusting your colleagues to ask questions. And I feel like we don't know the answers. We know, we know a lot, but we don't know all the answers, but I, I feel more comfortable asking Amy, you know, so here's this lesson for science. What do you, what do you think? Or give me a strategy that you think that would be effective. And I just feel like that sharing is just so key in our craft. Also, I would say that being intentional, I know um, Amy mentioned this earlier during the lesson, she walked around, she had a clipboard with her questions. And I, I know for me, for science, I have been more intentional writing questions down. What is it that I anticipate the kids to ask I me mean, to answer? What am I going to ask? Like, that's been very key for me. And then lastly, which I also think is really important, is status. You know, for our research theme, as we have said, ownership. But I feel teachers tend to give kids status as well. And I feel it's so important for us as teachers to give all of our students a voice and to encourage them to be active participants. Going back to my focus student, he participated in language arts, but not in, in science or math. And so I was able to give him a voice when he started coming to science, because even though he wouldn't speak, I would say, oh, well, so-and-so shared this when I was walking around. And just if we want to build kids' confidence, if we have to give them status, and it, it doesn't just come from their peers. And I've learned that just by observing. It comes from the teachers. So it was really eye-opening having the observers share what they were seeing because when you're up there teaching, you miss out on a lot. You're looking at 30-something kids. Sometimes you just finally get the final project product that they present, like the exit ticket. But having someone who sat there and watched the student go through the whole process and strategies that they had tried along the way and stops and restarts that they did was really eye-opening and helpful to learn about. And and made me aware of all the different strengths and, and strategies my students were trying that I didn't necessarily get to see and also opened up to some misconceptions that I wasn't aware of that students were making because maybe I didn't see them making that. Or by the time that I got to that group, they had already scratched that and started on a different strategy or had started working with their group by then. So it opened up my eyes a lot to the process that I don't necessarily get to see as a teacher, one teacher to 30 something students. That was really important. And then something else that really came out of the feedback that I got from my observers was think time. So I, on one part of my lesson, I had launched a task that the students were supposed to do. So we had gone over some different strategies for solving the border problem together as a class. And then 
they were tasked to go back and record a strategy in their journal that they wanted to try. And one of the observers started a timer and all around the room, most of the students were just copying the work that was already done on the board for them to see that we had done as a group. And then nobody jumped in. Nobody went to save the students. Like Anna said, we're not giving the answers to them that they want. And then at the eight minute mark, the observer noticed that at eight minutes of think time is when all these different strategies started coming up around the room and the students were, I don't know if they were tired of sitting there waiting for us to come save them or if they realized, oh, she's really serious. We've got to try to come up with our own strategies. But at that eight minute mark is when some really neat thinking started happening and different strategies were tried and students were being brave and taking risks. So that really opened my eyes. I don't think that I normally would give my students eight full minutes of silent think time to sit at their desk to try new strategies. So it really made me cognizant of making sure that my students have the time they need to process what they've heard, generate some thoughts in their head, and get going with the tasks that they have in hand. That was such an exciting moment that was very brave to give the kids eight minutes of wait time and such exciting learning happened. It was a long eight minutes, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Now we've been talking about how this lesson study process begins to change how you see your students and instructional decisions that you make from the very beginning of the process. At the end, you have all of this data and all this collaboration on the data provided by the observers. But then the impact lasts a long time after this particular lesson study process. Anna, what continued for you after your second lesson study cycle? Well, it was really exciting for us. After the second cycle, Diane and I had, right before March, we were actually going to put together another lesson study that we were going to do on our own. We wanted to give it a try. Of course, we would have probably ended up calling Joni for help. <laughs> but we, we wanted to do that. But, it, but also we noticed that our teaching took on a different look. We were, the word problems we were doing, situations, our perspective on what we thought they should be able to do easily, it changed. And what we thought were easy as adults who teach math, the question we would start asking ourselves, how would the students see this? So I think that was the biggest change because now we're asking ourselves, all right, well, let's do this. How are the students going to see this? How will will our vocal students attack this problem? What could we expect? What what, um, sort of conversations would we expect to see our small groups do? What can we do to help them, not give them through the, the process? How, you know, how can we set it up? So we started asking ourselves all these questions when we were going to do another Mars task or we wanted to do a problem maybe from our math curriculum that we felt was really important to break apart. So that that led to a change in our our thinking and our teaching. Um, Our principal, which... She loved this process. I mean, I, she couldn't be more on board. Now insisted that Diane and I tell everybody else 
um, and had us share out in a in a PD about our experiences, some of the work we did, in hopes that we would get other grade levels interested in doing a lesson study. So um, I would say Cook is on its way into getting more grade levels um, in the process itself. Amy, what did you continue after the research lesson? I concur with Christina. I think collaboration is key and we continue to collaborate even though we weren't all focused on one particular lesson study. We just continue to collaborate continuously. Like if you looked at our text messages all the way till uh, 10 o'clock at night, like we're just constantly asking um, for feedback or ideas or, hey, I'm, I'm stuck having problems with this in uh, with the student in math that they don't want to share out or I, what have you, what is working for you? I think that was really key. And I've also been more intentional of making sure that all students have an opportunity to participate, whether it's having them share out with a partner, share out whole class, going back to their student interviews and honoring their learning preferences and knowing that they're valued. We have some students that have great ideas but they are more withdrawn and don't want to necessarily share that and, and honoring that they might not necessarily want to share out with the whole group all the time, but give them a voice, like Christina said, to to build up that confidence to be willing to share. Maybe they'll want to put out a slideshow to show their ideas, but not necessarily want to go up and stand in front of the class and present something. So just really letting them know that you hear them and you value and honor their voice and but also encourage them to share and talk even if it's with one person or with the teacher and I know after this I've been really cuz I was that student that I would sit there in class oh my gosh are they going to call on me are they going to call on me like my whole anxiety level was up just wondering if someone was going to call on me so just being really aware of the students and and talking and checking in with them beforehand, say, Hey, that's a great idea. Do you mind sharing this? Or can I share it? Or if they didn't want any of the options, like, could you teach this to your partner? So your partner can share your idea for them and just giving them an option, uh, opportunity to, to have their, their voice and their idea shared in a way that's most comfortable for them. I think that's the basis behind the, um, our instructional decisions. What are we going to elicit from our students? What problem should we use that will We'll get the most from our students. That, and I agree with both Christina and Amy, is getting them to function as a group, but also think on their own. I want to end by thanking my guests, Anna, Amy, and Christina, for sharing your thinking and continued work on high-quality lesson study. I also want to thank you, our listeners, as you've followed this conversation about CanMe's inquiry into high-quality lesson study that helps all of us to make equity concrete in mathematics lessons. Tune in to other episodes in CanMe's podcast series, Making Equity in Mathematics Lessons Concrete 